my theology, political philosophy, leadership philosophy doesn't look the same as it did five years ago. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm so certain of my theology and my leadership philosophy and my Mm -hmm. political philosophy. I'm Steven Tyler, and this is No Indie. Each week on the show, I share a conversation with one of the good people doing their best right here in Indianapolis. This is episode four and is the conclusion to my conversation with Chip Knighty, the founder and chief catalyst at Kairos Consulting. If you have not yet listened to the first half of my conversation with Chip, pause right now and go listen to episode number three. For everyone else, Thank you for listening. Here is part two of my conversation with Chip Knighty. I want to dig in a little bit on, you had a provocative statement that I read. Okay. And it sparked my curiosity in a way that I just wanted to go go through it. You wrote in one of, uh, let's see, where did it say? Your exact phrase was, I find that my greatest growth has come from challenges that have made, paralyzed me at the time. Yeah. And then you listed four or five things. So <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you <laughs> Specifically about these four or five times. I'm not because- going to be vulnerable here, Stephen. <laughs> Are you uh, trying to control me? Not at all. No, go ahead. Ask away. <laughs> we preface, make sure I get the premise right. Yeah. Um, I find that the greatest growth has come from the challenges that made me paralyzed at the time. And the first one you said was, believing I needed 34 hours in each day as a plebe in the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did... What's that describing? Oh my gosh. So I I mentioned earlier that the first time I set foot on the yard of the Naval Academy, I was like, this is it. This is where I need to go. Because it's these beautiful granite buildings and everybody looks so sharp. And it was, I mean, Annapolis is just a beautiful city, town. And I had absolutely no idea what I was in for. And Mm. the first day that you are a plebe, it's called I Day or Induction Day. And it rocked my world. I'd never had anybody in my face yelling at me. And all I could do is sit there. Like you're not allowed to, it's not a, it's not a fight, right? You just sit there passively, take it. And I couldn't do anything right. Mm. Um, if you show, if you got bad, if you got a, a bad grade, somebody be like, well, why did, why'd you get a bad grade? You're like, well, idiot, because you told me to shine my shoes instead of studying, but you can't say that. Mm. Right. Or why are your shoes not shined? Uh, because I was trying not to get a D in that class. There's mm. just not enough. To, I mean, it's designed to make you fail, right? It's designed so you cannot get everything done. There's way too much to do. And if you are a high performer, they turn up the heat. Mm-hmm. So they are guaranteed to make you fail. And if somebody is you know, struggling a little bit, they might back off a little bit, but it's always at the edge of your capabilities. So everybody who goes through as a plebe has to dig deeper than they've ever d- dug before. Um, John McCain, when he was a POW in the Hanoi Hilton in, in Vietnam for seven years, he said the one thing that best helped him survive his seven years as a POW was his plebe year at the Naval Academy. Wow. Yeah. So like, I don't, I know there are lots of things in life that are harder than being a plebe at the Naval Academy. You know, first world problem, you get to go to a great educa- a great school and get an education and grow in your character. However, for me at the time as a 17 and 18 year old, that was really hard. Uh, I promised myself that I would not quit before my first year. I'm like, if I get done with the first year and I decide I want to go home, okay. Mm-hmm. And there were three times where I remember walk. this is in 1989 and 90. So I'll say phone banks. You may remember what those were like. Yeah. So I, w- I was walking to the phone banks, ready to call my dad and say, hey, I'm leaving. You can buy me a plane ticket or I'm hitchhiking. Don't care, but I'm coming home. And each time I turned around, went back to my room. Um, but 
the fact that I even considered quitting, uh, to me just tells you that tells me and hopefully other people, the state of mind I was in. Cause that's not a typical thing for me. What stopped you from quitting? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the embarrassment of saying uncle, um, I've never been asked that question before. I don't know. I do not know what stopped me. Wow. But I'm glad I didn't yeah. stop. Did that experience, I guess what I hear in that experience is that talk to you that your worth isn't in what you do. Is that true? Oh, um, I don't know if I learned that or not. Okay. Uh, I think I'm still at 46 learning that, mm. right? I think it's hard to dissociate our identity from our actions, our impact, et cetera. I'm, I'm, it's a lifelong journey. And I'm, yeah. I'm trying to step into that more. What did I learn? I, I'll tell you one thing I learned is that I, I could tolerate more than I thought I could. Mm. And that I could dig deeper than I thought I could. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't always lived into that for every other area of my life but that was certainly a season where I grew up a lot in one year. Enough that you could lead tanks at 24. Yeah. Right. One regret that I have is, um, I, I, I put on a false face to my parents and to my then girlfriend, now wife, Kim. And I acted like everything was okay, Mm. but I was miserable. I had never been more miserable in my life. And it felt very isolated and alone. Mm-hmm. And so I think I had, I think my motivation was probably to protect them, but maybe also to some degree to protect myself from the embarrassment or humiliation of really struggling with it. Yeah. Um, so I hope I learned a little something since then about, about willingness to ask for help or to acknowledge where I am, where I was emotionally. Do you think if they would have known and they'd had the sympathy understanding where you were that you would have quit? I don't think so. Okay. I think, um, I remember I, recently just over Christmas, uh, my dad made a comment. He said, one of the things that was good when he was at the, they had a parents association, you know, of, of, and so he got to talk to the parents of upperclassmen at the Naval mm-hmm. Academy. Mm-hmm. And they said, just remind your, remind your plebe that it, it changes, right? No matter mm-hmm. how good or bad it is, it's going to change. That's my only parenting advice I ever give to anybody. No matter how good or bad it is, it's going to change. Um, but so I think he would have, uh, I think, I think I would have got a pep talk. Okay. And ironically, if they'd given me a pep talk, it might've made me perversely want to quit. Like, screw you. You can't make me stay here. Cause you're an eight. Cause I'm an eight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the yeah. second growth experience you listed was failing to stand up to a bully in the Marine Corps. Oh yeah. Uh, was this, Directed towards you or towards someone else, the bullying? A little both. Uh, mostly it was directed towards Marine. So this is a guy who was a platoon sergeant who worked for me. So he was second in command of the platoon. He was enlisted Marine gunnery sergeant and uh, just a gorilla of a man, barrel chested, 225 pounds, whip smart, but had some serious insecurities that um, manifested in him uh, being domineering and... Uh, you know, probably not physically abusive, although it could have been, I don't know, but certainly emotionally abusive of the Marines in his charge. Mm. And I didn't have the strength um, or the courage to deal with that appropriately. Mm. And, and, you know, I can, I can cut myself some slack. Like I can look back at 20, 
22, 23 year old chip and say, okay, yeah, I have, I have some compassion for you in that circumstance, but I also, it was a failure, like mm. on my part, it was a failure of leadership, a failure of nerve. How did it make you feel at the time to see it happening around you, but not have the will to change it? I think, um, I think he was really good at concealing a lot of it from me, but when he turned it to me and I was senior to him, you got to understand too. Um, it was, it was embarrassing. And like, you know, when you have an event where somebody does something and it's so shocking to you, you like, you're, you're stunned by it. You're paralyzed. Just like mm-hmm. I, just like I said in that, um, it's one of those events where you could run that over in your mind a hundred different times and say, here's what I should have said. But mm-hmm. in the moment I just didn't have the character or the experience or the, I wasn't a big enough leader to mm-hmm. handle that. That that was a heat that I was not prepared for. You say it was a huge growth experience. What was the growth that came out of that? Oh, I would never, like, I would never tolerate that anymore. Like part of my personality is a protectiveness towards those who are being abused. Um, and I will, I'll pick a fight. Like I'll just, yeah. Like I don't, I don't care how big the, I don't, I don't care how big the, 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 the task is. I'm, I've never been, I shouldn't say, is that true? Uh, I'm not intimidated by people in authority. I'm not intimidated by, I'm not intimidated by much. And so uh, I've, I think the way that since then I've just been in a position to say, I'm not, I'm not going to allow people to get abused uh, because of my inaction. So that experience grew you in a way that has changed your behavior for the rest of your life. And it was a pretty early age. Yeah. Would you go back and do it differently if you could, or do you think the failure was a good I, enough? I mean, how, how can I even answer that question? Like I was not a big enough leader to yeah. do it at that time. Like I, that was, that's the way I look at it through the lens of heat and, and colliding perspectives and elevated sense making. I didn't have the courage. I didn't have the, so I'd love to say, I wish I had been, I wish I'd had a different character at that point. Yeah. I wish I had different maturity at that point, but I didn't. And so I've got to have compassion for that was 22 year old chip. That was 23 year old chip. That's where he was. I like the idea that you can, even the things that you think that you could regret or something like that, it, it added so much to your life yeah. and has made you different in who you are today well, to make you. So one, it's a bullet down range. You can't take it back. Right. It's going to hit what it hits. Um, two, uh, I am not where I was then. Mm-hmm. And hopefully I'm not where I'm going to be tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And um, Ignatius tells us that the desolations can be our greatest teachers. And in this case, that's true. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the, here's the funny thing. If you want to talk about Enneagram wisdom and something I'm realizing lately, if I look at that journey from 23 all the way through to, let's say, 46, which or let's just say today, all right, at age 46, um, I have to acknowledge, and I was, I was blind to this. It was a blind spot for me mm. that I had a tendency to be a little domineering. Not, I shouldn't say a little. I'm not going to soften it. I had a tendency to be domineering. I had a tendency to do damage to people when I wasn't trying to do damage to people. Mm. And so I've got to have some compassion for this gunny when I look back at him and like, he's not the enemy, Mm -hmm. right? He was doing the best he could with what he knew. And Mm -hmm. it was his defense mechanism. And he had that security blanket choking him out. Right. But he didn't know it. And, and I wasn't wise enough to tell him and help him with that. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of hypocrisy in that as I look back on it. Right. Like, it's like he, the reason I hated that so much is because there's so much of my personality in that. Mm. And the journey for a type eight is to leverage that strength and that challenging and that um, assertiveness mm-hmm. to protect other people instead of to protect myself. 
Okay. That's part of my own journey. So I've had some moments in the past year where I've just had, like, I've just, it's just hit me really heavy. I'm like, oh gosh, how much damage have I done over the past 25 years? Oh, wow. And there's a little bit of shame in that. Um, There's a, there's some regret, but there's also this, okay, but that's where I was. And so I've got to, I try to stand aside myself and non-judgmentally observe Mm -hmm. and say, okay, you can't change that. It is a bullet down range. What do you do now moving forward? Yeah. So there's, there's, that's a, I think I have a relatively healthy perspective on it now, but I'm sure that I'll continue to get many of my self-deceptions stripped away as I continue through life. And it's a painful process, but that's the way we grow. Um, the third thing you mentioned is a growth experience. And this one actually hit really home for me was trying to stay motivated <laughs> and effective when I lost interest in my corporate job. Oh yeah. I've been there. Yeah. Oh, what were you doing at the time? If you can say. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was working at Guidant Corporation and um, I was on my third different role at Guidant. So I, I was at Guidant for six and a half years. And I got to say like. What's Guidant do? Sorry. Sorry. Guidant doesn't exist anymore. It was a manufacturer of cardiovascular medical devices. Okay. So pacemakers, defibrillators, stents, guide wires, guide catheters, uh, all therapeutic devices for people with heart problems, either okay. plumbing problems or electrical problems or carpentry problems Okay. in their heart. And, um, incredible company. It was a Lilly spinoff, very successful, um, both from a business profitability standpoint and from an impact in the world standpoint and the type of people that worked there. I got it. Everybody that I worked with was a consummate professional, top of their game, Hmm. really good folks. Um, my first job was doing project management for our R and D organization. Mm -hmm. Second job was to do business process re-engineering and to lead a team doing that, which was a lot of fun, but it was hard. And then the third job that I had, and this is the one where I started to want to poke my eyes out with knitting needles, was do it being a financial analyst. Mm. And you remember my comment about data entry in a dark room. Yeah, yeah. So I, within a year, had got my job wired pretty tight. I'd automated the things I wanted to automate. I had influenced things I wanted to influence. The things that we were, as a group, were being paid to do, I thought we were doing pretty good, and it was kind of boring to me at this point. Mm. And so I took it upon myself to be the corporate chaplain. And so I spent about (laughs) somewhere between half and two-thirds of my time wandering around and sitting in other people's cubes and offices and just talking about life. And sometimes that was very welcome. And other times people were like, man, I got work to do. I'm like, okay, no problem. I'll go find somebody else to be corporate chaplain with. And uh, nobody called me corporate chaplain. Although uh, one of my friends, Karen Lang, who just recently retired, congratulations, Karen. She called me pastor chip. So that was was funny. (laughs) But um, my wife described after I got out of, out of corporate America, she said, you're going that experience was like a jagged crystal being shoved through a too small rubber hose. Ooh. Wasn't good for the crystal and wasn't good for the hose. And I was like, you, well, why didn't you say anything? She's like, I kind of thought you knew. And I'm like, I didn't know. Oh. And so I was flailing at one point. I, I was looking for another job. I had the, I made the strategically brilliant move of telling my boss that I wanted to look for another job and I wanted her to help me. <laughs> she was very helpful. Uh, as nobody, nobody in that position would have been helpful. That's a stupid thing for an employee to say to their boss. Uh, I was looking for insurance. I, wanted, I was thinking about being an insurance salesman. I was thinking about um, operating mobile cardiac catheterization labs. I was thinking about doing uh, being the CEO of a logistics company. 
none of that stuff would have been a good fit for me. Mm. And, uh, uh, luckily or, uh, as a blessing, uh, we were going to get acquired and I got to do strategy and change management work for 18 months after that and had an absolute blast. And oh, that, wow. was, that was a great launch pad into starting Kairos. So the hard part for me was I just didn't want to be there anymore. I yeah. didn't want to be there anymore. Um, so did you, the act or the change process, mm-hmm. were you still working for them at the time? Oh yeah. So, so it's just that third job. The fourth job was magical. Like okay. it, was, it was amazing. Got okay. to work with incredible people doing stuff that I loved. I didn't even like before that, I didn't even know organizational change management existed. Mm-hmm. And I got to work with a couple of consultants from McKinsey, uh, David Linsenmeyer and John Schilling, who were just amazing consultants, opened up my eyes to some things that were possible Got to work with a great executive within Guidant. I was his right-hand man for this process named John Seberg. He's an incredible leader. And it just really opened up sort of my confidence and my eyes for what was possible. Um, but that third job was was real tough for, for three years or so. And when you got um, got everything under control, yeah. you went on to be corporate chaplain. Yeah. Why did you go around to be corporate chaplain? You could have went and played golf or played war games oh, or whatever yeah. it was. Uh, yeah. War games. Um, I think that's just the way my heart was bent. It was Mm. just trying to, trying to help. Now, I don't know that I was always helpful. Like that's one of the things that part of my personality is I assume that I'm helpful in places where sometimes I'm not. Uh, Uh, I assume that if there's a power void that it's mine to fill, but I am learning that that's not always the case. So you were, you were bored for two years. Uh, yep. Why didn't you jump? sooner. I looked, I mean, I looked at all the roles around there at our headquarters and there were about 120 people working there. And I thought, I don't want any of these people's jobs and I don't want my job. Like, you know, it's something probably of a midlife crisis. I mean, I was 30, 33, 34 at the time. And uh, probably disillusioned by the fact that corporate America did not seem to be the meritocracy I had hoped it would be. And Mm -hmm. that, uh, you got to pay your dues just there like anybody else and politics are relevant just like any place else. Yeah. And um, I think it was at that point, it dawned on me, maybe I don't want a boss. I'm not sure it was a good thing for me at that point to not have a boss when I started yeah. my own business in terms of my personality and character formation, but it may have been what, just what I needed at that time just to get a break from. From what was, from what was, what advice would you give to somebody who's stuck right there? Oh, well, I will say this. If you are a, uh, in a corporate organization and you're thinking about jumping ship and becoming an entrepreneur and like becoming a consultant, mm-hmm. you should talk to my friend, Chris Taylor in Lafayette, K-R-I-S Taylor, because she is, uh, she started a element of her practice, which is helping people make that transition. So mm. that's one thing. And she's really, really good at what she does. Cool. Um, the other thing I would say is, make sure you're not running away from something. Make sure you're running to something. Because mm-hmm. we, uh, sometimes we as humans, we lunge based on some compulsion or anxiety and it's not good for us. Mm-hmm. And make sure you're not lunging, right? Like I was lunging towards cardiac cath labs and logistics and insurance. I wasn't passionate about any of those things. I wasn't listening to what really makes my heart sing. I was mm-hmm. just... You know, I mean, what a luxury we have in America that we can talk about. I don't like my job and I want a different one. Right. Right. Like it's first world problems. Um, but there is something to be said for, if you can, aligning your vocation with your calling in life so that work isn't miserable. 
Mm-hmm. I think there's something to be mm-hmm. said for that. But sometimes work is miserable. And, you know, as Ignatius would tell us, the desolations can be great teachers, so we can be grateful for them as well. So um, I think there's two things. One is there's a stewardship issue. Is your job the best use of the gifts that you've been given on this earth? Mm-hmm. And if not, maybe you want to steward those better, doing it, leveraging them somewhere else. The other thing is, um, the other aspect of it, to put it crisply, would be, uh, are you submitting to what is, or are you compulsively trying to get somewhere else? Because sometimes we just, if you're not centered and peaceful about a transition, mm. it's probably not the right transition. Mm-hmm. I could see that community aspect you talked about earlier being a big piece too. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we can grow where we're planted. Even if things are miserable, we can still grow. And so... Um, having a sense of peace about this is where I am and I'm going to do my best with what I've been given right now. That's different than um, where should I be a steward of my gifts? That's a longer term strategic question Mm -hmm. to ask. And as you say, community can be great to help us discern some of that stuff. Sure. Um, Another growth experience you really hit home with me too was learning to sell prospective services or learning to sell services to prospective clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have not been a person that has enjoyed sales, even though I pseudo managed a sales team for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, pseudo managed. That's a great word. It's pretty accurate. Uh, <laughs> my, my son would pronounce that pseudo management. <laughs> um, but one thing I'd have learned is that I think sales is important, even if you're not a salesperson. Uh, yeah. So I will comment that I've always had a, um, a personality that has enjoyed convincing people of my point of view. Okay. I've enjoyed debate. I've enjoyed the intellectual conversation to try to understand truth together. But usually I think I've got the angle on it and I want to help other people understand why they're wrong. Joke. Um, <laughs> so I've got a little bit of a salesy personality in that regard. Yeah. Um, when I started this consulting company, I, I had never sold any good or service and asked somebody for money before. Okay. So here I am starting out and what you eat is what you kill, right? Or what you, but you jumped what you out eat. because you're number eight. Uh, I don't know. I jumped out cause my wife had faith in me. And if she had faith in me, I knew I could it'd probably be oh. okay. I also had a nice uh, severance check from guidance as we were acquired, which I don't think I could have, I know I couldn't have done it without that. Okay. Um, I, I realized I don't know how to sell. And so I hired a sales coach mm. and I paid him $3,000 and he talked to me about neuro-linguistic programming and matching people's body, um, body posture. And it, it all felt um, manipulative and icky and not at all consistent with my personality and the way I looked at the world. Mm-hmm. And so I had, you know, three or four meetings with him and that felt like I had to take a shower after every one. And mm-hmm. he's a nice guy. Like, I like this guy, but it just wasn't a fit what he, the way he was looking at the world. Yeah. And then I just started figuring out that... Uh, I guess over time, I just figured out all I'm going to do is tell people, okay, I hear your problem. Your problem reminds me of another problem I've solved before, helped somebody solve. Here's the way we did it. Is there anything there that matches? And generally Mm -hmm. they'd be like, yeah, can you do that for us? And I'd say, yes. They're like, well, how much would that cost? And I'd say, well, that'll cost X dollars. And they're like, okay, let's do that. So that that became my sales approach. Yeah. Um, Which is, um, I mentioned my uh, mentor of mine, Eldon Kibbe. He told me the best sellers are assistant buyers. Their mentality is, I'm going to help the buyer make a good decision here. Mm. And I like that. That's a very selfless approach. And then maybe five years ago, I read Getting Naked by Patrick Lencioni, okay. which is, you know, he writes these business fables. He wrote, you know, um, 
death by meeting and five dysfunctions of a team. Getting naked is about the story is about a consultant and how he has to learn to sell and the way he thinks about uh, the approach of selling. And it was, I read it and I was like, ah, that's it. That's the way I think about this. I didn't have language for it, but that's the way I think about it. So that was, that was a, a watershed moment for me. And, you know, I just, I think all humans probably have some head trash around money. Like yeah. it's hard to just think, Hey, it's just a resource, right? We're so dependent upon it. We get ourselves in places where we even make ourselves more dependent than we should be on it. Mm-hmm. And I've got some head trash around it, but I have a lot less head trash than I had 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's also a piece of me just kind of throwing up my hands and saying, all right, God, you provide here. Like I'll plant the seeds and I'll water. I'm going to trust in your provision. And that has been the more I can think that way, the more peaceful I can be about it. And it's not that I don't have any role in it. Like, mm-hmm. hey, I throw up my hands. I don't have to do anything like the planting, the seeds and the watering. That's my job. Mm-hmm. But I don't give the growth. I don't give the increase. That's that's God's job. Did you have any early sales experiences where you thought you were going to get it and then you didn't? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I started Kairos in 2006. Yeah. And you may remember there was a recession somewhere around 2008, 2009. Yeah. So I really opened the doors in January of 2007. And wasn't a great year financially. 2008 started really getting some traction. I think you and I might have even, nah, not, not that early. Been a little later than that, probably. Yeah, a little later than that. Anyway, but I started doing some work at IU Health in 2008. And I'm like, okay, this is really going to go. Got a big project doing change management at a, what was then Clarion, now IU Health. Yeah. And um, at the end of 2008, I had four big um, proposals out. And if you put a gun to my head and said, what's going to happen? I would have said 95% sure all four of these are going to close. Recession hits, people start pulling in their horns, conserving cash, all four of them drop through. Oy. I had a completely empty pipeline going into 2009. <sighs> we got to the middle of the year. It's August. We had been dipping into savings and my wife who, and my wife and I, we don't talk much about money. We don't fight much about money. It's not, we've always had enough. Thank God. Um, she said, I'm not saying the time is now, but if this doesn't turn around, when will you consider a plan B? And I got mad when she asked it. And then the next morning after I'd slept on it, prayed about it a little bit, I said, okay, it's August now. If it doesn't dramatically turn around by January 1st, I will go to a plan B. And I had up to that point thought, I never want to write a resume again. I always, I just want to, I want to be independent. So for me to kind of let go of that and say, all right, I can't control that. That was a, that was a spiritual thing for me. Uh, it turns out in September, things started turning around. So I didn't have to wait all the way up till the you know, 11th hour. Yeah. Uh, but it's been, um, it's been a good journey since then. What's the headspace? What was your mental headspace going into? I asked because I've been there. Thought you had a sale. You did, you did your very best. Mm. It collapsed, the fell through and you realized that you had to turn around and do it again except do it better than your very best was last time. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've become much more philosophical about that, mm-hmm. which is if they say no, then maybe there's a reason I didn't understand. And I'm glad they said no. Oh, Cause a no is a no. Like, yeah. okay. It wouldn't have been a fit. I don't know why necessarily it wouldn't have been a fit, but it wouldn't have been a fit. So I've, um, I've gotten a lot, I'll say better or more alert to the energy of a sales process. I don't push things that don't have energy behind them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do get behind or follow the energy. If I'm feeling it in a conversation, if I'm feeling it in negotiation, I'll just keep going. 
But you know, if the energy goes out of that conversation and there's no energy anymore there, I'm like, I'm okay. So I try to not be attached. I try to take more of a Buddhist philosophy of non-attachment to the result. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, I'll do the best I can. I want to serve and help someone. Um, but if they are not going to value the work that we do, if, the, if they're not going to be willing to demonstrate the value of the work financially, they're not going to put the work in anyway. Because if mm. you don't value it financially, you're not going to value it in other ways. Yeah. And the work that we do requires people to invest deeply of themselves. Like it's deep work of the heart and soul. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like there's some consultants where you pay somebody and you outsource to them. Hey, I've got a problem. You fix it for me. All the work that we do is somebody saying, I've got a problem and I want you to fix it. And we say, we're not going to fix your problem. You're going to fix your problem. We're just going to walk alongside you and help you fix your problem. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's a different kind of mentality. And early on, I would take a sale. I'd be willing to take a sale when somebody would say, um, okay, we, we want you to fix the problem. I'd be like, yes, I'm Superman. I can fix the problem. And now I've just realized that doesn't work. Like it's mm -hmm. not fulfilling. They get bad results. So we don't do that anymore. So I've gotten better at not being attached. I would say early on, I very much had the mentality of it was devastating to lose sales. Like mm -hmm. I put all that time and energy into it. What am I doing wrong? And now I'm like, you know what? I'm confident in what I do. I know what we do well. I can present it to people. And if it doesn't resonate with them, that's okay. They're not the right fit and mm -hmm. I can move on. Um, the last growth experience you talked about was your, your quote, I'm quoting you, my depth of arrogance and lack of curiosity as a coach and consultant. Hmm. How, what? I'll start with what did you mean by that? Like what realization did you have that you realized, oh, wow. Uh, my theology, political philosophy, leadership philosophy doesn't look the same as it did five years ago. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm so certain of my theology and my leadership philosophy and my mm -hmm. political philosophy, right? So there's just a huge humility required to recognize, I don't know what I'm going to believe and who I'm going to be in five years from now. And I should hold this all very lightly. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm trying to get better about just saying, I've come to a conclusion for reasons but I should hold all of those conclusions lightly because I don't know all the other reasons. I don't know all the facts. I don't know other people's perspective. I, I only know a tiny little sliver of the world that I've, that I've experienced. So um, my natural personality bent is confidence. Mm -hmm. And my, um, my brain tells me that's stupid. You shouldn't be that way. <laughs> because think about where you were five years ago. So it's that struggle of, oh man, but it, but I, but it, it feels so right to me to believe this right now. And I'm just trying to hold that more lately. I've become more observant of myself. And so I can retrospectively look back and say, you miss you, you lacked curiosity in that conversation. Mm. I hope what happens soon is that I'm in the conversation and I realize I'm lacking curiosity or even better would be I, realize I'm going into a conversation where I may lack curiosity and I can start with curiosity at the beginning of the conversation. So I feel like I'm just at the beginning of this journey of being a more curious type of leader and consultant and coach. I've, I've learned to rely on my intuitions, which are right 90% of the time, mm -hmm. maybe 95, but that five or 10% where they're wrong, man, that really gets me in trouble. Yeah. I want to wrap up here soon. I yep. want to be respectful of your time. Do you have a dream project, client, or problem to solve here in the city that like you see it out there and you're like, man, if they would, uh, mm. they would pay me, I would surely make that work. So, uh, there's a risk of this sounding arrogant and maybe it is arrogant, 
So I'm open to it being arrogant. Okay. I feel like the state of leadership development work nationwide Mm -hmm. is pretty pitiful. Mm. And that there's a lot of ineffective or non-transformational leadership work that's being done. And so I feel like I am at war on behalf of clients and potential clients Mm. against this industry. Okay. But um, I also feel like I want to pull people from the industry into a different way of thinking about it. Like I would love to lead that insurgency or at least be a part of the leading edge of that insurgency that, um, that creates a different way within Indiana of doing leadership development. And I would love to um, share our approaches and learn from the best in other organizations within Indiana that are doing that. And I think we all get better from that because there is so much hard work to be done in organizations around helping leaders become great at what they do. And um, I tend to have a pretty abundant mentality around that. The pie is enormous and we're only just taking tiny nibbles around the edge. Mm. Uh, Last real question. Mm -hmm. If I give you a billboard here in the city, you can put anything on it. Mm. That's a Tim Ferriss question. It is a Tim Ferriss question. I stole it for sure. Yeah. What would I say? Uh, I would say... Um, the kind truth can make you miserable, but it's better than being in blissful, ineffective ignorance. Let it set in. Okay. I'll think on that one for a while. The kind truth can make you miserable, but it's better than being in blissful, ineffective ignorance. All right. Spoken like an eight. <laughs> Uh, any final ask of the audience? Hmm. Yeah. I'm, uh, no, but I'm, I'm grateful that you're doing this. Like, I think what you're doing here is important and uh, I love Indiana. I, um, I'm glad to be here. I'm, I like this community and uh, I think this is really important to connect people who are doing important things together so that we can get the best of all different worlds and cross pollinate and synergize and synthesize some cool things. Thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, where can people connect with you? Uh, website is kairosconsulting.com. K A I R O S consulting.com. Okay. Uh, that's probably the easiest way to connect. Are you a Twitter user or anything I, like that? I, t- I, I tweet not. Okay. Um, I'm paying attention to social media that my daughter is on. I've abandoned Facebook almost completely. Yeah. And I do a lot of work on LinkedIn. All right. Yeah. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm happy to connect with people. All right. Very good. That was Chip Knighty. A little background. I met Chip back in my days of office life. I was a client of Chip and his team at Kairos, and I can say firsthand that they are a pleasure to work with. So if you heard this conversation and think that Chip might be helpful to you and your team, you can contact Chip directly through the Kairos website at kairosconsulting.com. That's K-A-I-R-O-S consulting.com. If you like the show, please tell someone about it and don't forget to leave a rating and review in Apple Podcast. It is one of the best ways to help others find the show, and I will read everything you write. Find me on the socials at No Indie Show and learn more at noindie.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>